This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Measured Thoughts on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here's your host, David Reepstein. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Measured Thoughts with Dave Reepstein on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Dave Reepstein, and I'm joining you here on Sirius XM Channel 111, which I do every Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern and replayed throughout the week. Once again, I have in the studio with me Sunil Betty. And Sunil, welcome. Glad to have you with me. Happy to be here again, Dave. Um, been, you know, one of the things that I want us to talk about today is I want us to talk about art. Okay. And and have some sense of that. So I'm curious, have uh, Philadelphia is a great, great art city. It's a wonderful art city. So when's the last time you went to one of the museums? Let's see. I think about a month ago I was in I went to the Barnes. Oh nice. Oh, it was like a young professional's night at the Barnes and it was just fantastic. I don't really love I it. don't think I got that invitation. You did not. No. <laughs> young professionals, Dave. Oh, young professionals. You well, I am professional. That's true. Oh, true. Well, okay. I di- I didn't happen to get that one, but okay. So, uh, that's interesting. The Barnes Museum is just fantastic. It used to be in a private residence close to where I live. Oh. And it was an amazing, amazing uh, setting. And then there was all this controversy about, you know, it's not fully accessible to everybody. It's a big legal up, battle. Yeah, a big yeah. legal battle, and they eventually moved it into the city. I, for one, think it was a, a tragedy that they moved it into the city. Really? Yeah. So maybe we'll talk a little we bit about that about with that. our guests sure. and see what it is that they think about. And who are our guests today? Well, we have two guests that are in studio with us and are going to be with us during the entire program. We have Jennifer Zwelling, who is here, who is a curator of artistic programs at the Clay Studio here in Philadelphia. And then the second guest happens to be a very special guest in my mind, and, but not only in my mind, but in my household. So um, the second guest is uh, Professor Reebstein, that is Sasha Kuzel Reebstein, who's the director of the Bohm Gallery and a professor at Palomar College in San Diego, which is a long, long way away. So they're going to be with us in, uh, in the program, and so I'm looking forward to introducing them with us. I do want to encourage the audience that at any time, if you want to give us a call, you certainly can at 1-844-WHARTON. And that's 1-844-972-7866. And let me remind our audience, you're listening to Measured Thoughts with Dave Reepstein on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio Pi, uh, powered by the Wharton School. And you can also email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at biz, that's B-I-Z, radio, 111. Not surprisingly. So, Jennifer... Um, let me, first of all, welcome Jennifer Zwelling, who is the curator of artistic programs at the Clay Studio here in Philadelphia. Welcome. Glad to have you here. And, and um, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are. Thanks, Dave. I'm really excited to be here. Um, thanks for inviting me. I have um, been working in the arts in Philadelphia for many years. I love Philadelphia. I wholeheartedly agree with you that it's a great art city. I um, started out my art career at Temple University Tyler School of Art, where I got my master's degree in art history. Um, And I had been an intern at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, and I went back there after grad school. I worked there for about 14 years. So let me interrupt just for a second. It, It turns out we were talking about the Barnes Museum in just almost across the street from it is the Philadelphia Museum, which I think is one of the nicest art museums in the country. Absolutely one of the nicest ones. And so you were an intern there. That's great. I was an intern. It's an amazing program that's been going on for about 45 years. Um, Lots of wonderful people have gone through that program. You learn all about the business and um, side of the arts as well as the artistic side. You can be a marketing intern if you would like, so that might fit into some things we talk about later. You weren't a marketing intern. I wasn't a marketing. I was in American Decorative Arts. Um, 
And we, I'm happy to talk about the barns. I have all kinds of opinions about that. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll, come, and we'll come back to that. But how did you get to the clay studio then? And what, what was the transition there? Yeah, so I was in American Decorative Arts um, at the museum. I was the assistant curator in that department. Um, and I was asked to teach a history of craft class at Tyler. So I had to sort of teach myself all about modern craft, which is the contemporary version of what we call historical decorative arts. Um, And then um, after teaching that class for about 10 years while I was at the museum, I got the opportunity to um, apply for the curator position at the Clay Studio. So now I get to run the gallery program there. We have about 25 exhibitions a year, if you can imagine that. I know Sasha can. We have a shop, we have a permanent collection that I administer, a residency program, a guest resident artist program, and that's just what I administer, and I have wonderful colleagues who take care of some other departments I'd love to tell you guys about a little later. And and how long have you been there? I've been there for three years. For three years. It's an amazing, exciting, energy-filled place. Um, We serve ceramic artists from children to professional artists, hobbyists, everyone in between. If you want to make clay, if you want to come and buy yourself a handmade coffee mug, if you want to view art for free, we're just, um, we have a plethora of offerings. Okay, so I'm going to want to find out a lot more about the clay studio. Um, it is a favorite place for me to go and browse around and occasionally buy. Thank and, you. And, um, and I hear it's one of the best clay studios in the country. In the world. In the, in the world. Mm-hmm. I, I, I take that uh, correction very well. Sasha, welcome. Glad Hello. to have you here. Great um, to be here. I know a little bit about you, but why don't you tell us about your background and how you got where you are? Okay. I got my bachelor's in fine art from University of Michigan in ceramics and painting. And then I went on to Mass College of Art and got a master's of fine art in sculpture. And I was very lucky quickly after that to get a tenure track position at Palomar College in San Diego, where I still am today. For the past decade, I've been um, freelance curating, which also led to my current position as the director of the Bohm Gallery, um, which is really wonderful. And it's nice to be someone who's on both sides of the aisle to be in arts administration and curation as well as um, someone who teaches. And I have a studio practice as well, which is uh, very active. Um, so I try and cover all the bases. Okay. And, and you said sculpture. Do you only do sculpture work? Predominantly, I used to have a um, more production pottery business, but um, since having children five years ago, something had to give. Um, so now I do just uh, sculpture, just sculpture and some printmaking. Okay, so some of the printmaking as well uh, is, is part of what all is involved. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I have a pretty good understanding of that. I, I should have a good understanding of that uh, for sure. And uh, Sunil, I. You know, I'm so used to you being here, I didn't even give any of your background, but Sunil is a lawyer um, and now is in our doctoral program and um, and is uh, currently my favorite doctoral student who I'm working very, very closely with. Thank you, Dave. And, uh, and he's trying to get rid of my uh, adjective of currently and say f- my forever <laughs> doctoral student, and he's well on the, on the path for that. Um, now, one might wonder why in the world I've got two people involved in the art world that are on this program, and the reason is I want to know about the intersection between marketing and uh, and the art world, and I'm and I'm trying to think about it in a variety of ways, um, but I'm going to jump into those questions. But as I promised, uh, Jennifer, I want to have a good understanding of the Clay Studio, and for those in our audience that haven't had the fortune of coming to the Clay Studio, tell us what the Clay Studio is. We have been around for 44 years. We were founded by five um, artists, four graduating seniors and a teacher at Moore College of Art who needed some shared studio space. So it basically started as an artist collective. Philadelphia is a wonderful city for artist collectives because of its affordability and support of the arts. So there's even currently lots of... I'm I'm a professor in a business school, so what's a collective? Um, It's when everybody... It's a cooperative. It's when everyone puts in... um, the same amount of money and shares their space. When you're a ceramic artist, um, you need a kiln, generally speaking, and they're expensive and you need a lot of electricity to pay for them. But you really, uh, it's easy to share. So, so there's a lot of equipment that you Sharing resources need. Yeah. that you have, sharing space, mm-hmm. sharing 
basically uh, display also so that so you could sell in a joint space that right. you would all collectively own? Was it a cooperatively owned? Well, they rented the space. So it was a space on Oriana Street in Old City, just about a block from where we are now. Um, I learned recently that they all put $600 in in order to start it. And in terms of business, we are now a $2 million annual budget nonprofit. So we went from five people wow. putting $600 in to start it to $2 million with about 17 staff members. And the um, course in between those two points was to slowly create exhibition spaces and classes, then become um, registered as a nonprofit organization in order to get grants and maybe teach some more community classes and kids classes. About 25 years ago, we created the Claymobile program, which is an amazing program that brings ceramic classes out of the clay studio to public schools because we realized we wanted to serve public school children, but the biggest expense is for them to come to an arts organization. So we put everything on a minivan and we bring it to them. Nice. We serve about 2,500 students a year through that. And um, we've never owned our own building, and we are just right now on the cusp. We are um, in the mid midst of a capital campaign. We're halfway to our fundraising goal, and we're going to be building a new building in South Kensington that can better accommodate. We are bursting at the seams. Most organizations in the arts have trouble getting um, people to come in and really participate. We sell out all our classes. We teach about 4,000 adult students a year in our school program. Um, on site, we have um, amazing date night um, programs yeah, on Fridays. Yeah, so we were just talking about you selling out all your classes. Yeah. So uh, Sasha very nicely uh, gave Sarah and I a, um, a, a gift certificate of date night. And we've been trying to get that scheduled, but you guys are <laughs> so busy with that, it's impossible for us to get in. And it sounds like uh, it's a really fun time. It's an, an amazing two-and-a-half-hour intro to throwing. You don't have to have touched clay before, and you just get to have lots of fun and make some pots. And yes. then we fire them for you and send them off. Does everybody just end up making ashtrays like I did? Like I did Not in, anymore, in, in, Dave. In, Maybe uh, 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah. well, 20 years ago. Well, that's right, because nobody's smoking. But but what it is, I wasn't smoking when I was in kindergarten when I made my first ashtray either. <laughs> well, it was, it was a gift for your thing. parents, right? It, yeah, well, that is true. Yeah. But it was like, it was the only thing you could sort of form, and it didn't have to be perfectly shaped and everything. So You can make a cereal bowl. It doesn't have to be perfect. So. Well, okay. We've got several of those at home. So. Yeah. Uh, so that's really interesting. Uh, Sasha, let me come back to you for a second, because here we're talking about the Clay Studio. Um, you've done some stuff with the Clay Studio. I have, indeed. You're, you're, you live in San Diego. How is it you were doing something with the Clay Studio, and what would you do? Well, having grown up in Philadelphia, the Clay Studio was just this magical place. Um, I came back and lived uh, in Philadelphia after undergraduate school, and I had gotten my degree in ceramics. So I actually uh, worked in the Claymobile program, which was fantastic, um, and it was just a dream to exhibit there and be able to work there. I did volunteer in their visiting artist program. Um, yeah, I was the assistant for the visiting artist, and then in 2015, when I was on sabbatical, I got to be that visiting artist, which was kind of a full circle dream come true, and that was a wonderful little over two months where I got to live a couple doors down from the Clay Studio and have my own uh, practice out of there, which was really, really incredible. So um, you were there for how long in, in 2015? It was a little over two months. Yeah. Yeah. And they provided you an apartment? I and... had an apartment, a small stipend, and a studio space. Yeah, it was okay. sweet. So that, no, that, it was a sweet, so that's nice. Uh, so that, that's very good. Let me remind our audience, you're listening to Measure Thoughts with Dave Reepstein on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. And you can give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And we're currently speaking with Jennifer Zwelling, who is the curator of artistic programs at the Clay Studio in Philadelphia. And Sasha Kuzel Reepstein, who's the director of the Bone Gallery and a professor at Palomar College. Okay, let's get into the meat. I want to know about the relationship and the role of marketing and art. And in particular, what I really am, am interested in, does, does marketing only come into play after the art is done? That is, okay, I'm an artist, I have my creative expression that I want to do, 
I express myself, you know, in my art. Now that I've done that, I have to figure out how to sell it. Or how much of a role should an understanding of what that marketplace looks like of customers and let that influence what art it is that is done? So that sort of is the nature of the question that I'm really curious about. And bam, I want to start with that right now. So Jennifer, give me your perspective on it. That's a great question. Um, I have a perspective as the Clay Studio and nonprofit, but I think I'll actually start with referencing our resident artist program. So we have 12 resident artists who are young professionals in the field, and we offer them subsidized studio space and any kind of support we can give them. We help them with grants. We give them exhibitions. They sell their work in our shop. Um, and what I've noticed and what I feel really strongly about is that these artists are having an opportunity to figure out how to make their life in art. And that includes, you know, how do I sell my work and how do I price my work and what kind of work I make, do I make? And um, a lot of, when you walk around their studios, you start to notice that there are people who are often making both sculptural work and functional work. And Sasha was saying that that was part of her practice before we know what kids do to... Um, professional lives. But anyway, that's another <laughs> show. Um, so I find it very interesting that there are in ceramics, you have this opportunity to make something functional that is sellable. And so let me pause mm -hmm. because there's a little bit of lingo that I, it, it, I had to be educated. Oh, in. Sorry. You said there's sculptural work and then there's functional work. So just to be really clear, functional work means it, you can use it to, in, in some function, like a coffee cup or that cereal bowl you were talking about sure. versus something you might put on a wall or put on a, 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 man, a mantle. Exactly. Right? And we could have some other conversation about that there is a function to those things as well because yeah. they bring us joy. But yes, when we're talking about it right now, I mean... Um, tableware. Yeah. Um, so our shop sells all kind of tableware, that kind of functional work, vases, cups, mugs, things like that. And because the general public understands that kind of thing as a product, it's easier to sell it on a more regular basis. And there are more outlets for selling those things. Um, so there is this great combination. There are different problem-solving um, methods needed for making something that you are going to use for food, for eating, as opposed to something that you're going to um, just put your own conceptual artistic vision into. And the fact that these artists are actually switching their brains to do these two different functions, I actually think strengthens both of their work. And so they have to think about the user when they're making a, a mug. They have to think about how you hold it and what it looks like and if you feel comfortable with it and it has a smooth surface. And then when they're doing their sculptural work, they can either choose to respond to those things that they've learned in making a mug or they can decide that this is going to be a moment of freedom and then they can leave those things behind on purpose and make it rough and sharp. Um, and maybe even a little ugly. So it's this really wonderful, um, I think to answer your question, basically, specifically in ceramics, you have this opportunity to, um, to do both of those things. And with the, with the cups and mugs and functional wear, yeah, you have to think about who's going to buy it and why they're going to want it. Yeah. And then on the other hand, you have this freedom. Um, so, so I'm going to want to pursue that, that freedom side, the sculpture side. Mm -hmm. To, to sort of find out how much we need to think about the market on that side as well. But I want to get Sasha's perspective on this as well. Should it be that creative freedom and versus trying to think about how is that going to do in the marketplace? I think it's a really tricky question. And as a professor, it's something that I really have to address with my students. Um, marketing is incredibly important. It's become more important with the advent of social media, and it's become more accessible to people. Um, there's this wonderful quote from Jermaine Greer in The Guardian where she says, she's talking about Damien Hurst, and she said, Damien Hurst is a brand because the art form of the 21st century is marketing. Right, and so from first of all, I love that quote. It's the, pretty art good. Form, the art form in the 21st century is, is marketing, and yeah, so a lot of it is in the ability to use Instagram. So my, I mean, my students are on it from their first ceramics class. They're posting their pots, and so um, they're developing their brand, right? And so they're developing their identity and talking about what that brand is, being careful about what that brand is, is really important. Um, what I um, so warn them against 
is um, because of that Instagram, because of the accessibility, often they try to make work that looks like what they're seeing. They try and make work mm -hmm. that looks like what is selling in the market. And there's an insincerity that comes along with that. And so it's really important um, for them to have that self-expression component and understand what that means and be authentic to their life and their experiences and their background and to put that in there. Um, so I think it's very dangerous to look too much to the market and see what people are responding to and try and reflect that. I think it is important to look at the market um, to think about, okay, well, this is my aesthetic, this is you know my concept and what I'm creating, but is there room in that to make work that responds to the market? So for me personally, in my studio practice, if I can take a sculpture and get it up on the wall, it's going to sell better because everyone has walls, mm -hmm. but not everyone has floor space, right? And so I think there are components that you can take um, that are looking at the market and what is preferable that way, but still um, being true to the self-expression of what your content and aesthetic is. Yeah, but if you're too too far leaning in that direction, you end up just filling your parents' basement with uh, with pieces that you've created that don't sell. It's possible. But it's if, possible. But if you think about in the contemporary art world, you know, the kind of work that is selling in New York galleries, that is often, you know, a sculpture that sits on the floor. So it is, you can't think of it as worrying about whose basement it's going to be in, in a lot of ways, because um, <clears throat> then you're really, if you're, if you're com constraining yourself from the very beginning with those ideas, you're never going to be able to reach your true potential. And that's why school is so important, because it's an opportunity to kind of not worry about all of that. There's a, a flip side to this as well, that you sometimes artists have to be willing to destroy their work um, in, in order to free yourself to make something that is out of the box and too big and messy. You have to be willing to think, okay, well, when I s exhibit this and then I, I'm done with it and nobody buys it, I'm going to I'm going to take a hammer to it. Um, but, but maybe some of your best work in terms of your expression of who you are, even if the market doesn't necessarily appreciate it, there's no customers out there. So in some sense, it, it really is destroying that, that expression, that creativity. It also it? frees you to be able to make another one. And this, as opposed, I, I, what I mean is you don't want to be constrained with that worry of where it's going to live, because that's, that's a heavy concern for a lot of artists. You know, you can't, pay for storage. Um, I don't encourage people to destroy their work, believe me. I think it's really important to see the um, c continuum of art from the time you're young to when you get older, but it, it is, um, and it, it's an issue, right? Yeah, and I think it's also really important to know who your audience is. And so I think um, the assumption that difficult work is going to end up in your parents' basement isn't a very productive assumption. And so um, there are a lot of markets. There are the markets that's the craft market, where you're going to be selling objects that are under $500. There's um, the higher-end fine arts gallery object, where you may be getting you know, a couple thousand dollars for something. And then there's the blue chip <clears throat> art market, which has a lot more um, flexibility and room. And so going back to Damien Hurst, he sold a $12 million stuffed shark which is in a formaldehyde tank. And he is the UK's lar uh, richest living artist um, with his estate valuing at over 215 million pounds, which I'm not even sure how many dollars that lot. is. That's definitely a lot. And um, he does that largely selling work that is, um, he's made more than one animal that's been taxidermied and displayed in a formaldehyde tank. Um, he has all sorts of work that you would be surprised sells. And so, um, again, I think it's about figuring out, you know, are you going to be getting an NEA grant? It's not selling the work. It's selling the concept in your product. Um, and so I think there's a huge diversity in that and figuring out what that audience is is really important. So to me, one of the things that's very interesting is when we think about art and think about a market, uh, unlike products that are reproduced time and time and time again, you know, we want to think about what percent of the market might be interested in this or percent of the market that might. All we need for any piece of art is one customer, right? And so we don't need to know what the general trend is. 
we don't need to know that, you know, boy, 20% of people prefer this over here. No, we just need to know that there's going to be one person out there that is going to buy that formaldehyde stuff shirt that... Um, shark. Shark, excuse me. <laughs> I thought you said shirt, which surprised me, but yeah. shark. Um, and that that would be, you know, we just need that one. And so it's you're you're making a face at me. That well, we're on radio, just... by the way. So when you make a face, I don't... <laughs> well, right, and that means you see you saw it, so you could respond. Okay. Um, it's not one person; it's the art market, which is a subset of the public. So right. it's not um, it's not a general trend of twenty percent of Americans. It, but it's still trends of twenty percent of art collectors and buyers, and that's a that is not just one person. That is a group of people and. They very much do look to see what they, each other are doing and respond to those things. So I would quibble yeah. with this idea that it's, oh, oh, you only need one person. It's not, it's not really that. It's just a small subset of the general population. Yeah, and it's sort of interesting that they influence each other, and I, I find that pretty fascinating. On it. So, Sasha, I wanted to follow up on something you just said. You kind of broke up the market in some ways into three or, or four different segments, and I think in marketing what we like to do is segment the market and kind of see who we're targeting. So when you think about this, when you think about the segments in the market, do you think about that after, you know, you've kind of made your art and, you know, how am I going to price it so it's going to sit in a segment? Or is it, you know, uh, as a, let's say, as a rising artist, people, uh, Jennifer, that are in, in the Clay studio, you know, they are actually geared towards listen, this is going to be that blue chip. I'm going to be designing for the blue chip market. or I'm going to be designing for the under 500 market. How do you think about your product and segmenting them? I think that's one of the hardest things artists have to figure out um, because you don't go from nothing to selling a $12 million stuffed shark, right? Pop, In, of course. You know, if we're still talking about Hearst, he first got his success selling these spot paintings. And so they were colored spots. They were much more easy to digest. And so um, I think it is really hard to break up that segment and figure out where you fit into it. Obviously, it's a lot easier if you are a landscape painter um, and you can kind of, there's a, much more assumptions about what you're doing. Um, but you have to think about um, what your goals are for a career and what you're willing to invest in it. Um, and often to make it to that blue chip sphere, um, you have to invest more. And so how much danger are you willing to take? Um, me as a studio artist um, and with a lot of studio artists, we end up becoming teachers. And so you have that cushion, um, but you also have less time in the studio. And so it's kind of making decisions about how secure you need your lifestyle to be. Um, and then, again, what kind of work are you interested in making? Are you a performance artist and you're not interested in making objects that someone could take home? Well, then you don't have a lot of options, mm -hmm. right? You've mm -hmm. got to go um, for that. And so um, a lot of it is, you know, the kind of object you want to make, and that helps you figure out kind of what, what sphere you'll be in. But you'll be surprised um, working that out. I think a great story is um, Roberto Lugo, who is also a local potter, a local artist, I shouldn't call him a potter. <clears throat> he tells this story of going to a craft sale when he was in graduate school and bringing these teapots with him, and he was trying to sell them for $35, and he had spent $200 on his vendor booth, and over the course of the weekend, he made $60. And his wife happened to lose the $60, <laughs> um, which was just absolutely demoralizing. And a few weeks later, he walked into Wexler Gallery with those same pots in his backpack. And he, um, they asked him what he sells them for. And he tried to come up with the most outrageous number he could think of, which was $500. And they laughed in his face. And they said, we don't sell anything less for less than $2,000. So if you're willing to up your prices, we'll sell your work. And wow. so now he sells a bowl for about $5,000. <laughs> wow. And so, you know, it's, it's figuring that out, right? Yeah. He was about to quit making art with those 35. And so I think it's testing out the market mm. and figuring out what sticks. So that's really uh, fascinating for me to hear. I'm going to want to ask both of you the question about pricing of art. But we're going to do that after we take a break because we're going to need to take a break right now. When we come back, we will continue with this conversation and try and figure out how you set prices. And I also want to have an understanding of the role of branding in, uh, in marketing. And 
I want to think about that for a specific artist. I want to think about that for studio um, as well. We will take a break right now. This is Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. We were just talking about these prices and some, sometimes outrageous prices for a stuffed shark. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I'm trying to think about how, you know, actually, Jennifer, you you have a shop there. And what should I call it? A shop? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You do retail there at the Clay Studio. And how do you give... First of all, do the individual artists that are displaying there set their own prices? Pretty much. So we have a shop and a gallery. The shop um, is consignment, and generally speaking, the artists price their own work. If we feel like it's maybe a young artist who needs a little bit of advice, we'll help them. Um, But yeah, I mean, a big part of our job is explaining and educating the public when they come in and ask why a mug costs $75 or $65 and it's a great opportunity to explain the process of ceramics and what it means to be an artist and that kind of stuff. Um, Where I have a little bit more input is more the gallery side when um, especially the resident artist or a young artist is showing work and they ask me, you know, how, how should I price this? Um, And it's kind of related to Sasha's story. There's this sweet spot, you know, if you price it too low, there's a psychology there that will make people think it's not worth more than that. And they actually won't buy it because it's too cheap. It's not important. But if you price it too high, you're going to run into, you know, our audience. It's, there are a few people who are buying pretty high ticket things. But most of the time, even the gallery, um, there's like sort of $2,500 is a great, great spot for us. So um, it's a challenge to think about that. And is it a young artist who doesn't have a name, but the object is really amazing? Um, is it an, a more established artist whose work is well known, then you don't really have a problem. Um, it's interesting for me, again, from kind of a business perspective, I was trained as an art historian, I worked at the art museum. When you're at the art museum as a curator, you're actually ethically not allowed to talk about prices. Um, so I went from that <laughs> to being asked how to price somebody's work. Um, so it's been quite a learning curve, but a fascinating one, um, because it, it's about supporting artists. And that's what I feel really passionate about right. is helping artists to, to make a living. So, so, Sasha, I know that you are a professor, um, you're a curator, but you also are an artist and sell uh, some of your own work. How do, you, how do you go about trying to think about what those prices are? It's hard. It's a lot easier for me to tell other people how to price their work yeah. than how to price my own that's, work. That's the role of a professor, <laughs> telling other people how to do it. When, you know, doing it yourself is a little bit harder. But how do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think um, Jennifer touched on it. It does have to... So your identity is your brand, right? And so you have to um, know whether or not you have a brand that can sell on its own, whether people know your name, whether there's been publicity, whether you have a resume you can lean on. Um, and that helps identify what kind of price you can ask for um, for your piece. And again, like talking about, you know, I talked about the wall work versus the sculpture. If I'm making a five foot, five foot tall, three foot wide sculpture, only so many people are going to be able to afford to put that in their home. And again, they would not want to spend a small amount of money on that because it seems insignificant. And so looking at the type of object, how it can be displayed, um, all of that is going to inform um, how you price your work. And the other thing is to have diversity in your pricing. Um, and so to have the smaller objects that are more affordable, that are in the, you know, hundred, you know, couple hundred dollar range, and then you have the couple thousand dollar pieces. And so that way you're actually reaching different audiences. I think Peter Pincus is a great example of that. He um, is doing very well uh, with his pottery, and um, he makes sure that he always has $150 cups that he can sell so that he has a loyal following. That's, that's the low end for him. That's the low oh, end for yeah, him, the yeah. high end for him. I know that's hard for it. For me, that's just, you know, of course you would spend, you know, $65, $100 on a mug. And it's crazy to me that people don't see that value because they're willing to spend, you know, $5 on a coffee from Starbucks, but not the mug that will stay with them for their entire lives. And so, um, you know, I think educating the public, uh, let me... Okay. Um, 
Ayumi Hori did this wonderful project in Colorado where she has a um, pottery library where people can actually check out pots and so that for free you're able to interact with a handmade object like that, that helps educate the public oh, so wow. that they can understand the value of what they're getting. And so I think, you know, educating your public, um, but again, then having that diversity. So I said, you know, Peter Pincus was starting at that 150 and then he also sells $60,000 pots. And so it's making sure that your practice is um, diversified. So you raised an interesting question um, somewhere in there about how, and you, you said, well, it depends what your brand is, whether or not your brand would support you. Peter has this great brand mm -hmm. and has developed a great reputation. So I've got a, a, a Pincus cup or pot. And, uh, and so that means something when you're able to say that. Um, I'm trying to think about if you have this wide range of prices, does that possibly um, actually hurt your brand? And, and, fr and frankly, I've been doing research on that, not in, in the art world, but looking at it in a variety of other domains. Of, if you stretch your brand vertically, uh, high prices to low prices, does that in some way hurt your brand itself? So, I, so you know, I continue to try and think about how marketing intersects with, uh, uh, with art, and, and that might be one way. But what I'm really thinking about is, as you set your price higher, does that allow you to establish a, a better brand? So that is, the price signals what your brand is, as much as your brand signals what price you can get. So to some degree, it's, you know, it's recursive, it's circular. Um, thoughts on that? Well, on, on one aspect of that, um, I think that having a lower price point it allows you um, to achieve to access the people for whom your brand as an artist is aspirational. So it's the same thing as when you walk into a coach store and you you can buy a keychain with the coach symbol on it um, if that's the only thing you can afford. But you're going to really value that thing because you love coach bags. Well, the same thing is true if you can afford that hundred and fifty dollar cup. And you'd be surprised at the young college students who are spending $150 on cups, because to them, that is a piece of artwork that they will treasure that will come with them for the rest of their lives. And they may, you know, not be able to achieve the other thing. So I think it does help your brand in that way, because it widens your base. Um, and then the other question about the brand being recursive, I mean, absolutely, if you can ask for a higher price, and you can get it, then your brand is going to be more valuable. Um, and you probably can have a little bit more freedom, and that's when you get to the point of being able to um, maybe stuff a shark. Um, <laughs> but I, there's another example kind of of that uh, that's a little even maybe more extreme in some ways. There's a, another British artist named Phoebe Cummings, and she makes um, these amazing installations out of raw clay. So she makes, she constructs them, um, sculpts these beautiful flowers in organic forms, and doesn't fire them, which means um, that they are ephemeral. They cannot last. So they're in a gallery. They may last for a couple of years just as dry things, but eventually they're going to crumble and go away. Um, and she has built her brand on those things. People love her. She has thousands of followers. Um, people all around the world think she's an amazing ceramic artist, and you literally cannot buy and keep one of her ceramic pieces. Um, so I think that's another example of this idea of the, the brand is actually more important than the stability of the object you know she it's the idea of her work that's what's um valuable well you know so you, you got we were talking about brands and, and i think jennifer you, you kind of raise an interesting point um and, and i guess what i want to ask is aside from the price i think this notion of setting a high price increases your brand are there other ways you can uh, uh build your brand so you actually brought up you know luxury goods you brought up coach which i think was an interesting point um, in some ways, people think of fashion as art. Um, it is. It yes. is? Okay, right. Exactly. I, I didn't want to say it without uh, getting approval from Thank you guys. You. Yeah, but um, one thing that I've, I've seen a lot, um, I'm kind of interested in fashion as, as art. One thing I've seen a lot is co-branding, right? I've seen there's this, there's this company called Supreme, which was a, wasn't that popular, and it was a streetwear company. They did co-branding with Louis Vuitton. Uh, and now they're huge. Um, actually, Louis Vuitton just hired their um, their creative director as their head of as the head of LVMH. And so I'm wondering, you're in a, a, a gallery. Mm -hmm. um, you 
also in a gallery, but also sell your own art. Is there, do you think about co-branding in terms of individual artists and, and galleries, or do you think of co-branding between galleries, between artists? How do you guys think about that? And does that help your brand? Yeah, I mean, I think who you exhibit with. And so I think that would be part of the co-branding um, certainly reflects on what your brand is. Um, you know, a lot of art is who you know. And so um, that certainly comes in place. Um, you see less collaborative works, like actual, you know, collaboration to create an object. Um, but certainly who, you're, who you surround yourself with is really important. And I think that helps um, reflect your brand and your price. So that, that's, I, that, and I find that fascinating because there's a parallel in the rest of the marketing world of where I distribute says mm -hmm. something about what my brand is. Mm -hmm. And if I'm selling at Walmart, that's very different than if I'm selling at Tiffany's. And, and so you communicate your brand by where it is you display. Well, and that's true for which galleries you show your work in. And then, honestly, it's, again, reflexive for the gallery because the Clay Studios brand is somewhat dependent on the quality of the artists we have in the gallery and in the shop. And we strive very hard to always make sure that that's the case. That also gives us the opportunity to, um, and this is a little bit of a shift, but going back to that brand question, the brand of a place like a, a nonprofit like the Clay Studio is based on our mission which is to support ceramic arts and um, make it accessible to more people. So when we are um, thinking about who's going to be in the gallery, that's how we shape our brand in a way. So we have really established, wonderful artists who already have their reputations. We want to support young artists because that's part of our brand as well, our mission. Um, and we also want to make sure that we're showing diverse artists. So those are all ways that we as a gallery can build our brand through our mission the same way that an artist can through their artistic vision. So that was a really great question about collaboration because it, it does, it's good for the artist and it's good for the gallery if they're good places. Um, and then to follow up with a nonprofit and with artists, especially ones who want to think outside the box in terms of exhibitions, um, it's about grants. And really when you write a grant, you're kind of trying to sell your brand to the granting organization. Um, and then getting a grant is another thing to add to your brand reputation. So you got an NEA grant, you're going to tell everybody because that makes you a um, more established and more well thought of artist. So all of these things are kind of fitting into that. So I was going to directly go to the branding of individual artists to the branding of a studio or the branding, you know, of a gallery. And, and, or a college and, program. And, or a college mm -hmm. program. And trying to think about who we bring in, who we play, is, is, some, is one way of how you create your brand. And, you know, as you said, the, uh, Jennifer, trying to think about the, um, you know, the brand of the Clay Studio is you've got a not-for-profit mission of trying to help support, you know, emerging artists. And, um, and, and so you don't want to just have those people that are well-established displaying there because you've got a particular brand image that you're really trying to project. Mm -hmm. And that's part of what it is that you're doing. And, and when I think about the Bone Gallery in San Diego, what is it, how is it you try and brand that? And Yeah, um, so it's really exciting for me because the Bone um, Gallery is Palomar's gallery. And so we are not a commercial space, so we are not contingent on sales. And so our brand is, um, I attempt to always have works that are more experimental. Um, so I want to have things that are ambitious and things that are not easily sold, like the work that Jennifer was talking about. Um, and I would say that is our brand is more of a learning space is, as an a space to explore and experiment in. So one of the things that uh, as an artist, I'm trying to think about how I get my art out and, and how I display it and build my individual brand. Um, Sasha, you brought up something earlier that, that I find fascinating is how um, the internet, not just social media, but how the internet has changed the distribution of art. And that we could have, you know, artists can have their own website and can sell their own art that way as well as, you know, online sales. Um, I'm trying to think about how that's changed, and I think part of it is the greater reach that all the artists have. Um, and I'm also curious how it might affect 
studios and galleries because now I'm less dependent on them. So, so Jennifer, you know, what's the what do you see as the role of, of artist and the internet as a way of distribution? Um, I think it's a, certainly a democratizing tool. Um, as you say, it's it's easier to get directly to people, but you still do have to kind of go through channels of if you are a ceramic artist who wants other people to see your work through Instagram, you kind of have to follow the right people and then get them to maybe reference your work so that their audience will see you. So it's still a, a network that's happening. Um, and I think another democratizing thing, and um, just to, as an, a quick aside, is another pro-Philadelphia comment, going back to that idea of collective galleries. It's um, There are a lot of galleries and artist spaces in Philadelphia that are still collectively managed, like Vox Populi, Automat, Practice Gallery. These are all just artists who put their own blood, sweat, and tears and a little bit of money into a space, and they are able to create um, very active exhibition scenes, and other artists and people who are interested in the arts come to see those. So there's a a lot more accessibility to showing your work here in Philadelphia than there is in a place like New York City. Really? Um, absolutely. We we're just we have a really good reputation for um, being supportive and more open to young. So, so mention artists. the mention the uh, Fleischer because I was on the board at Fleischer. Uh, for a few years. So what's Fleischer, and, and do you interact with it at all? Yeah, a little bit. Um, they actually have a, a really great outreach program, kind of like our Claymobile, that's called Color Wheels, I think, so they're getting out into the public. Um, it's a f- generally free to take classes there. They have really wonderful young people's classes. Um, they have a gallery space, but it's a little bit more like mine. It's an established nonprofit organization. I mean, uh, the Clay Studio is incredibly free compared to the Clay to, to the Philadelphia Museum of Art in terms of how flexible we can be. But but if you again go down to these very artist-run collectives, they're they're much more kind of open and, and flexible in terms of space. But you know, what about Fleischer? Do you do you love the most? So what I love, you know, I I ended up interviewing a whole bunch of people that were students there, and they said. Oh, my mother took classes here. My grandmother took classes. The reason I live in Philadelphia is so I could be close to the Clay Studio. So they they offer sixty to eighty courses a semester, yeah. free to the right. public, and it really is trying to bring art into the community. And it's really uh, it, it's absolutely amazing. I don't, uh, Sunil. I don't know if you even knew about that. I did not know. Uh, no. But it's an amazing place, and I think Philadelphia is such a vibrant art community. Uh, and, and actually, I think that probably helps everybody. Yeah. And, and, and so it generates this mm-hmm. more greater appreciation for art altogether. Uh, but, you know, I am curious about selling art online and how that affects things. And I don't know whether or not that's like, you know, like produce that you have to feel it before you could really buy it or, or what. But, uh, Sasha, you have a, a website um, where you show your art. That that URL is uh, sashakr.com. Sashakr, as in kuzelreepstein.com. And um, and so it's possible for someone to buy the art that way or at least to look at the art and you develop your brand that way. How, how are you using your website? Yeah, my website does not function where you can buy directly from it, but I do have contact information and I have been contacted through my website to, to have sales. Um, it blows my mind that people um, are buying art, particularly ceramics online, when the first pots were being sold, I thought nobody is ever going to buy a cup without holding it. And they did. Um, And I was really amazed by it. Ayumi Hori, again, is one of the marketing geniuses in that um, she has pots in action. And so I think it's being smart at how you present them. And so she has this project where people will buy a pot of theirs and then um, take a photograph of themselves with the pot and then they get to be featured on her website and so and you can look at a map and you can see people in your town who are using her pots. She works with um, musicians and puts together videos that feature her pots and you know I think it's really interesting and people get excited and galvanized. You know we've talked about Instagram. Um, I show a lot of in-process photographs. I don't show as much finished work on Instagram as in process and it gives people a glimpse into your studio. It allows them to know you personally and again with your identity being your 
brand, people want that insider look and it gets them excited, it gets them committed, it gets them engaged. Um, and so then they are more willing to buy online without having that physical experience of, of seeing the piece. Which... So I think of it as a whole new world for artists because now you have to think about, you know, I want my work to get out, I want to develop a reputation, I want to sell some of my work. Um, I need to think about what I'm doing on Instagram. How do I get myself very recognized and very visible? Um, you know, I love this idea of people being able to take pictures and post them with your art. Are, are, are either one of you teaching about how to interact with social media uh, for, for that? Because it seems like that's teaching marketing to your art students. That's the biggest thing I hear from students, um, not just at my college, everywhere, is that there need to be more um, classes for that. There need to be more professional practices is usually what that course is called. Um, and I do try and incorporate it into my classes. And it's something um, that I emphasize you have to be careful with. Um, as we all know, social media can be something that you can't take back. And so you do want to be careful about um, what you put out there. But certainly, I think it's something that education has to catch up with a little bit more, um, particularly in the arts. Yeah. So, uh, so I, uh, one of the questions I want to ask you before we run out of time here, which is, um, what do you wish you had learned earlier in your career? Um, you know, the way I was going to ask Sasha is, what do you wish your father had told you uh, <laughs> earlier in your career? But for either one of you, what do you wish you had learned earlier in your career that would would be helping you today? And, and, I really and value my my journey, but I think maybe that's what it would ease your mind as a college student or a grad student graduating to know that you're not going to have a straight path and that you should value the, the turns in your path um, and that you're probably going to get, you're going to be doing different kinds of things and that you should also kind of welcome all those opportunities um, and that it's still a, a really um, rich and successful career, even if you don't do the same thing for 40, 50 years, which I think is what I thought would be the case when I was a college student. So yeah, just yeah. The, the twists of the journey. Sasha, this is your chance to educate your father about uh, <laughs> what you wish he had done? Well, I don't think it's wish you had done. I mean, for me, I you know wish there had been more information on how, how to get yourself in front of those important galleries and how to, how to introduce yourself, how to present yourself, um, and how to get into those spaces, I think, is really important. And one of the best things I did learn is to not wait for opportunities to come to you, but make your own opportunities. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, sounds like marketing. <laughs> sounds like you, you needed even more marketing than you got. That that's uh, absolutely great. Um, I appreciate both of you joining us today. Uh, the time just went right by, and it's it's uh, it's fascinating to me because I look at it and I I sometimes think of uh, marketing as an art, where I think about the art of marketing, but but now what we've been talking about is the marketing of art. And, uh, and so the marketing of art, uh, absolutely wonderful. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks all the listeners. I would also like to thank program director, Patty Hall, program uh, producer, Matthew Datz, sound engineer, Danielle Bruno. I'm Dave Reepstein. You've been listening to Measure Thoughts with Dave Reepstein on business radio powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.